Hello, and welcome to another episode of Android Bytes, powered by Esper. I'm David Ruddick, and every week I'm joined by my co-host, Michelle Rahman, diving into the wide world of Android, esoteric technical concepts, developer topics, engineering questions, discussing devices, the evolution of the platform, you name it. And this week we're getting into a topic that truly is fascinating to me, which is the in-vehicle infotainment space and Android automotive. So I'll let Michelle introduce our guest, who is a real expert in these areas. Thanks, David. So today on the show, we have Emil Burconi, who is a Android app developer, as well as a device maker of a dongle you may have heard of called AA Wireless. Emil, thanks for joining us on the show. And why don't you give us a brief introduction about what you do? Hi, everyone. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, it's really a pleasure. My name is Emil Borconi, as you mentioned. I'm a developer, like I said, hardware producer. I think business manager now. Every bit of all in the past started as an enthusiast, I think in 2015 with Android Auto, when it all kicked in. And today, we are making our own device for the wireless, which which brings wireless connectivity to cars which do not have wireless Android Auto. But, uh, probably we'll discuss that a bit later on. And I will say Please. I misspoke. I said automotive when I meant auto, which I always do. So <laughs> obviously we're talking about the projected experience um, in cars, not the native operating system experience. Yeah, that is actually one of the main reasons why I want to talk about Android Auto on today's show, because it's very frequently confused with automotive. Like We constantly see questions about what's the difference between Android Auto versus Android Automotive. And I think that's a very valid question to ask because Google probably doesn't do a great enough job explaining the difference to consumers and automotive just kind of sprang up out of nowhere. And it's finally after years, I think it's been several years since it was announced, it's finally started to show up in modern V cars just because of the, the lead time it takes to develop and create cars. So it's finally something that people are becoming aware of that is Android automotive. And now how it compares to Android auto, I think is a very interesting discussion. So that's why I invited ML because he has a lot of experience working with Android auto in particular. Before we dive in, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the in-vehicle infotainment system that you find in many, many vehicles today and why basically Android Auto has to exist, why Google even made it. If you've bought or used a car that's been made in like the past maybe like seven years, you probably noticed that there's like a tablet display centered in the console and the industry calls them in-vehicle infotainment systems or head units. And as their name implies, they're inside the vehicle and they're designed to enable informational and entertainment experiences, including maps, navigation, podcasts, music, etc. Most cars these days have an infotainment system, but what's not ubiquitous is the operating system or the software that's running on them. It's a mess. There's a myriad of proprietary systems, systems that are based on automotive-grade Linux. There's a, more recently Android Automotive is coming into the fray. Tesla famously has their own operating system. It's one of the proprietary examples. Many of these car makers, you know, they're good at making cars, but they're not software and operating system companies. So whenever there's a bug, there might be a lot of bugs and there might be some catastrophic bugs. I was recently watching a YouTube video by the channel Half as Interesting that talked about a bug that bricked the infotainment system on a really name brand car line. And 
I highly suggest you take a listen to it because it, it's quite fascinating how this seemingly simple bug could cause an infotainment OS to just boot loop endlessly because it couldn't handle the extensionless images that were being broadcasted by an HD radio station. And after watching that video, it made me appreciate, okay, yeah, this is why you need a company with experience in operating system and software development like Google developing the OS or the experience that powers these IVIs. I wanted to hear your thoughts on this. Like, do you think this is a good idea for Google to get into and other software companies? Yeah, I do think that car manufacturers in the past, at least, they were pretty, pretty restrictive. Okay, they were like Bob Solid. If we go back in the day, first entertainment systems, they were able to play maybe FM radio, AM radio, then they added one to more features like MP3 or CD players before that. So they were very, very simple and they were very, very safe. But as our whole world grew and demand from the users basically went from non-existing to everyone wants to have their contacts shared with the car, their media, their cloud sync, their, I don't know, they want different profiles, they want different filters, they want everything different in a very, very short time frame. And car industry is not prepared for this kind of changes, usually to, to make anything, any change in cars, when we speak about cars, it takes years and years of development. They have to plan everything forward in production for, for years. I do this from experience because I did work a few years for one of the big companies manufacturing, and everything is planned up to even up to a decade in front. So changing something overnight, like the whole technology, boot, they are not prepared for this. Of course, they try to make all these changes, but even big companies have bugs, even big companies do mistakes. And Honestly, the whole car art industry is not made for this. They know how to make cars, but they don't know how to make a good software a good, or a good UI or a good user experience when it comes to infotainment. They try to do it all. They, we saw new cars putting all kinds of display screens and everything, but sometimes they do lack the nice touch and feel. And I think software companies like Google, Apple maybe, Tesla, they do bring over this to the new level. Let's have a look at what Tesla did. They came in 2013 when they, they launched Model S, I think. Was it 2013, 14? It was, yeah, it was 12 or 13, I think. 12 or 13. And it was revolutionary. It was like nobody ever saw that or expected that before. It was like, wow, that's, that's the new standard. And I think quite a few others have tried to catch up with that. I think, yes, Google coming, finally coming to produce its own system for cars. It's a right, the right choice or the right move because they have all the knowledge. They have all the background. They have Google Maps. And, and let's face it, Google Maps is probably the used map. So I think, yes, it's a very good choice from them to, to actually come to the table with this. And I think that the example you gave, Michelle, I'll name them because I had a Mazda and I hated that IVI. It was really a tragedy. It goes to show not just that Mazda had these software problems, which they did. I believe their OS was based on Linux, not Android, but correct me if I'm wrong there. Another whole side of that. So Mazda was an, is an Android Auto partner. Now, when Mazda introduced Android Auto, though, for a lot of their cars, they said, okay, we'll have an upgrade path. 
Well, Mazda, being a car maker, didn't even understand that, oh, we're going to need to add a higher throughput USB port with more voltage because the phone's going to drain its battery and the quality of service for the connection is not going to be high enough. So what you had to do is take your car in, and I know because I got quoted to do this, you would have to pay the dealer like $600, and they would take out the USB hub in your car, put in a new one that could do 10 watts, so 5 volt, 2 amp, I think, and then it would put in like another extra USB port. So you would actually have to retrofit the car. I think that goes to your point, Emil, that car makers just don't think about these things. They don't think about upgradability. They think if the product is fairly static and in place once it's been sold to the customer. And now that's changing in a big way because of expectations consumers have developed from their smartphones and tablets and laptops. Absolutely. And we're seeing Google's taking two different approaches over the years to address the needs of car makers to adopt better in-vehicle infotainment system software experiences. First, they introduced Android Auto, and now more recently, they're starting to roll out Android Automotive through supported car makers and through partner agreements. The focus of this episode is on Android Auto, whereas we talked about Android Automotive on a previous episode with folks from Snap Automotive. So if you haven't already taken a listen to that, I highly recommend you do so. But even though they're two separate in-vehicle infotainment experiences, there's a lot of similarities between them because they're both targeting the same experience. They're both targeting the in-vehicle dashboard. The apps that are written for one can largely be extended to the other. So even though they're separate, they should be considered distinct experiences. There's a lot of similarities and everything that's happened with Android Auto is fed into the experience that Google is using to develop Android Automotive. So taking a step back, First of all, what is the primary difference between Android Auto and Android Automotive? For those of you who don't know, Android Auto is entirely phone-based. Everything runs off your phone. The entire user interface, all of the apps, everything is projected from your phone onto the screen in your car's dashboard. Android Automotive, on the other hand, is an entirely Android-based operating system. It's running natively in the car's head unit. So the car's head unit has its own chip, it runs Android, which is Android Automotive. It's, it's an entire flavor of Android that's supported on very few select cars out on the market right now. The Polestar 2 is one, I think it was a first car on the market with Android Automotive OS. So you won't find very many cars with Android Automotive OS just because of how new it is and how long it takes to develop cars. But Android Auto has been around for a while and there are quite many vehicle models that support it. You probably both have used Android Auto, of course. Do you guys use it on a daily basis? Do you use it all the time? What are your thoughts on the experience? I've used Android Auto from the very beginning. So Hyundai was the initial launch partner for Android Auto. And at the time, Google was testing on, I believe, the Hyundai Azure, which was a short-lived midsize sedan that Hyundai sold in the U.S. And they were the reference car for Android Auto initially, which I think was around 2014, 15, something like that. And then GM was the next big partner. So Google acquired partners really rapidly for Android Auto. And the experience was truly a game changer on all of these cars. Hyundai went as far as to say they were getting rid of all analog and physical media playback on their cars because they're like, once you have this, you don't need all of that anymore. They really went all in on this powering, really the bulk of the UX for people. And the same was true of CarPlay when that came along. So I think what you saw with automakers initially Initially, especially, was a huge attraction to the value add of Google services because it didn't really cost them much of anything other than technical validation. You got to work with Google, make sure it works right, get your parts compatible, and then roadmap appropriately. 
So my experience with auto over the years has been one of, it's so useful, it's so helpful, it adds so much to the experience, but Google's vision for it has been very start and stop, not to use a car pun. They've evolved it in certain ways over the years, like the most recent iteration with the big UI overhaul that I think they announced like, what, two years ago, something like that. It's very, very interesting to watch them iterate on it and how that plays off Android Automotive. Do I use it every day? No, I use it whenever I'm up at the office in Seattle. I use CarPlay at home because that's what my vehicle is compatible with. But in terms of Android Auto and the experience, what I've always loved about it is truly the Google Assistant integration. That is what makes Android Auto and by relation automotive, because it's in that OS as well, very powerful. And that is something that car makers simply haven't been able to crack at this point. I've seen no car maker with a good voice control system, especially for something like mapping and navigation. They just don't work well. So that to me was always and remains why auto is such a great product and why you would use it 10 times out of 10 if your car offers it and the same of CarPlay. So my experience has been, while I don't find the development and ambition around auto as a software product particularly inspiring in the last few years, you would never want to give it up once you have it. It's indispensable. Yeah, I can only underwrite that. I think I started using Android Auto Base back in 2015 as well. At that point, I was looking for a solution to somehow project my small phone screen to a tablet, mounted it to my car's dashboard. And that's when I stumbled on Android Auto. And that's what I kind of fall in love with it. Like you said, once you start using it, you don't want to give up. It offers everything what you need, starting from Google Maps, being able to text and drive safely, being able to read out your messages, to see your calendar, to just tap the screen and navigate to your next meeting. I think it was spot on exactly what you needed. I'm a big time user or a long time user. And if I use it on a daily basis, yes, I do. One problem was the USB cable and getting connected all the time because that was very annoying for short trips. When you have to drive like 10 minutes, you don't really want, feel like pulling out the phone from your pocket, plug it in, getting out of the car. Oh, I forgot the phone in the car. Let's go back. Nah, that, that was a hassle. But once you go wireless and everything connects seamlessly with your phone in the pocket, I mean, it's set on all the time and I drive like really short distances these days. Maybe less than two miles, even that Android Auto is on. So, yeah. yeah, and I recently had the chance to use the wireless version for the first time, actually, on a on a Chevy. And it works surprisingly well. I was shocked by the latency and the responsiveness, not a lot of frame drops. It was quite performant. And once I had that, I was like, that solves really my one big gripe about it at this point, which was that the wired connection reliability especially is quite bad on a lot of cars for whatever reason that I'm sure, Emil, you could speak to because it's a topic that befuddles me. I had rented a Volvo S90, which actually runs Android on the operating system and was one of the most optimized cars for Android Auto when it came out because Volvo and Google work very closely together. But getting that thing to accept an Android Auto connection, I had to factory reset the head unit twice just because the cable stopped working. So uh, the wireless side of things definitely improves the UX a lot. It does, except when it doesn't. <laughs> because, yeah, wireless indeed helps a lot, and it solves the 
cable connectivity issue, which we know it's a nightmare. It's, I think, the bug or the issue with Android Auto. However, it introduces its own set of problems. And those mainly come actually from phone manufacturers who decide to go off the standards at all kinds of implementation for battery saving features or limiting gaps and all other stuff, which in many, many cases end up significantly bettering the experience you have with Android Auto wireless. And trust me, I get that a lot. You know, someone who manufactures a product which offers wireless connectivity, you have no idea how much problems you can have with wireless, sadly, especially from some manufacturers. While I was researching for this show, I came across a Reddit thread that just highlighted one of the many mysterious problems you can have with wireless connectivity. So this user discovered that while they were connected to their phone's dashboard using wireless Android Auto, that it kept frequently disconnecting while they were in the middle of driving. And eventually they figured out it was because their phone kept trying to connect to one of those free hotspots offered by Xfinity. And so every time it tried to do that, it would disconnect from the wireless Android Auto because that uses 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi. And you can't connect the two wireless networks at the same time, or at least most phones don't offer that capability. So frequently disconnect and reconnect. And it's just, how does the user supposed to know this is happening and that's the root cause? They just don't. All they see is it disconnecting and reconnecting and it just... And of course, there's little you can do while you're driving. So it's incredibly frustrating to experience. Well, I think I can have a dedicated subject to all the potential problems which can happen. I mean, I can probably talk hours and hours of, of potential issues and uh, all kind of strange and weird stuff which we have saw with wireless connection. And not only with wireless, even with wired connections in the past years. I think it is a whole book which can be written. The good part is that slowly, slowly, I think Google actually is uh, fixing these bugs and closing these issues. Although new ones are being introduced almost with every update on Android OS. So every time we go from 10 to 11, from 11 to 12, there is a new set of bugs and that's like almost a given. I never saw one major OS upgrade without bugs coming. So speaking of OS upgrades, and because this is the Android Bytes podcast and not the Android Complain About Bugs podcast, I'd like to talk about <laughs> more of the platform side of Android Auto and how the app came about and what it makes use of under the hood. Because, you know, it's a very interesting black box of API usage because Android Auto is completely closed source. It's Google's proprietary app. But you, Emil, have done a lot of work trying to understand how it works because you created your own application that enables launching it on the actual device without connecting to a head unit. You also made the AA wireless dongle, which we'll get into shortly. I think you probably are one of the few people who have a really good understanding of how the protocol somewhat works, even if the application itself is still a black box. So before we dive in, both you, David, and Emil are longtime users of Android Auto, so you're pretty familiar with the history, but for those of you who don't know, Android Auto has been around since 2015. That's when ML mentioned he got into it. That's the year Android Auto was actually first released, even though it was announced the year before that. So it was originally a standalone app that you could download and install on your phone. Confusingly enough, there was also another standalone version of the app that you could launch on your phone. So you had an Android Auto that you could launch on your phone screen, and then you had the Android Auto service that would connect to the dashboard and you display your phone apps there. That confusion, you know, it's just Google. If you're familiar with Google products and services, confusion is part of the mix. 
they introduced that phone experience in 2016, but got rid of that last year when they introduced assistant driving mode. So you don't have to worry about that. Now Android Auto is just the projection service that connects your phone to your dashboard. One major change that happened was that starting in Android 10, Google's announced that Android Auto is now built in to the operating system. And that confused a lot of people because they kind of assume it's part of AOSP when they say it's built in, but that's further from the truth than you might imagine. What they actually did was they made Android Auto a GMS requirement. So in order to license Google mobile services, you'd have to bundle Android Auto. Specifically, if you are a device maker and you want to launch a phone running Android 10 or later, you have to preload the Android Auto app as a headless core service app. What I mean by that is that the Android Auto app comes pre-installed as like a stub. It's basically an app that doesn't have a UI or anything, and it's pre-installed on the read-only system or the, I think it's a product partition. And it's a privileged app that's pre-entered the myriad of permissions that it needs in order to function. And all this has to be done when the device maker is building their OS, their operating system for their device. So it's not something you can actually just install. If you were to build AOSP, you cannot just install Android Auto and have it work. You have to pre-install it on the operating system and make sure it's granted all the permissions that it needs. So that's what they mean by baked into the operating system. It's pre-installed on all Android devices with GMS, not AOSP. And then in Android 11, Google took things a step further, and they said that all Android devices will now support wireless Android Auto. So what they actually did is that they added another GMS requirement that says that after a certain date, all Android 11 plus devices have to support 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi. And 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi support is the base technology that's needed to support wireless Android Auto. So Android 10 made preloading Android Auto a GMS requirement. Android 11 made support for wireless Android Auto a GMS requirement. So pretty much any Android smartphone you pick up today with Google Mobile Services will support Android Auto. That's not in question. The problem then is inconsistencies between your phone and the car and the head unit itself. The cable you use, et cetera. Like if you've ever used Android Auto, I can guarantee there's probably not a single soul on this planet that has had not had an issue with it in the past. Some may be luckier than others in terms of how often they come across issues, but issues with USB cables are really, really common when you're using Android Auto, at least wired. So I wanted to ask you, Emil, can you tell us a bit about the way wired Android Auto works? Yeah, it does sound complicated, or for many people, it might be a black box, but at a very high level, it's very, very simple. The phone will generate the video and audio stream, and that will be pushed over to the car unit. The car will receive your touches or your button inputs, and it will send it back to the phone. And the phone will treat it just as an external display. So at a very high level, that's all it is. How they make that technically happen, yeah, it's a bit more interesting. But it's not actually such rocket science. It took me a while till, uh, and not only myself, there were quite a few other developers who looked into this, but it took us a while till we figured out the whole protocol and how the head unit and the, the phone is communicating. But very well-structured protocol, it's using protobuffers. And once you understand that, it's actually very, very easy to work with Android Auto. There is no difference if it works over USB or Wi-Fi, other than how those that data is moved between the, the car unit and the phone. They are exactly the same. The big difference is what is using the USB to 
move the data and the other one is using a TCP over Wi-Fi to move the data. But other than that, all the packets, all the data is absolutely the same. So there is no major difference. Although in new versions, I did saw some changes in Android Auto and it looks like they are going to implement a few things like different audio codecs, probably like AC3 for audio, we prefer for wireless most probably because it will use less bandwidth. So it will make things smoother or faster with a wireless connection. But as it is now, even those few cars which offers wireless Android Auto, they still use the same as, as a USB Android Auto. So there is no major difference. I have some technical questions there because I don't really know too much about the data protocols and formats Google is using. So obviously, like you suggest, bandwidth is a big concern, especially once you go wireless, because the connectivity may vary over time. The device may be in somebody's pocket where signal is weak. So you talked about audio codecs being an area where Google might be investigating, reducing some bandwidth usage. Are there areas in the video side where there's been movement? Because obviously that's the bulk of the data being transmitted. Not as far as I know, I think since they started up till today, they still use only H.264, which is a standard. They added more resolutions. They will add even more resolutions in the future. I did see the protobuffer suggesting that there will be vertical screen support, native vertical resolution supports, but they are still based on H.264 codec, which is, which is kind of a golden standard. Even CarPlay is using that. So I don't think they will actually change it in the near future. Plus bandwidth, it's not that much, actually. It's more about latency. I think bandwidth, I made some calculation, you would need about 34, 40 uh, megabits per second to have a decent, nice connection between the two of them, as long as the latency is, is really low. If the latency goes up, then you have a big problem. Yeah, on the subject of latency, is there much variability between vehicle manufacturers? Because in my anecdotal experience, there is. There surely is. And sometimes you cannot even work it out. And I can speak from my own experience, not necessarily from the car manufacturer experience. As we manufacture our own hardware, we see massive differences between phones, which you cannot explain the same chip, the same hardware and you see massive latency difference. It can depend on the area where you are. It can depend on interferences from outside. It can depend on Wi-Fi drivers the phone uses. So I think there are so, so, so many variables that it's almost impossible to, to actually pinpoint. So from what I've seen, many people seem to blame the USB cable. You mentioned a few of them before, but I'd like you to explain in detail from your experience, what are the most common issues and is there anything users can do about them? Indeed, the most common issue is the USB cable. And sometimes it's not the USB cable itself because it's not one USB cable. It's one USB cable we see or we use. There are still harnesses in the car which runs all the way to the end unit, depending how they are wired. You might have somewhere like that contact somewhere on, on the ground or anything which could add noise to your USB running in the car, which transform the car head unit to the actual USB socket, and that can cause issues. So there are really, really loads of possibilities where things can go wrong. And the worst is if you take the USB cable and you measure it, yep, it's all up to standards. You check your USB port on the phone, yep, it's all up to standards. You check the USB port on the car, yep, all up to standards. However, when you put them together, 
let's say, the resistance or the fluctuation or God knows some of the microchip or anything might decide not to work well together and they just do not want to work together. And you take a different cable and it will work. And you take a broken cable, put it in another car with another phone and it will work perfectly fine. So it is a very difficult one to pinpoint. I'm also glad I'm not going crazy with that experience because I rent cars every time I go up to work and I feel like every time, okay, let me try a different cable. Oh, this one doesn't work. I should throw this cable away. And then I go to use it with my laptop and it's like, no, it's it's fine. There's nothing wrong with the cable. Yep. In the very beginning, I, I didn't believe this till I had exactly the same experience. Uh, I was renting a Chevy. I was using the OnePlus phone with OnePlus original cable. No dice whatsoever. I took the cheapest USB cable I could find, tried it, and it worked perfectly. And that original USB cable from OnePlus, it's a high-quality, good cable, which I used in many different cars without problems. But that Chevy, that cable, that phone just did not want to work. So, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one. And to be honest, I'm curious. I started looking into it, but haven't actually spent too much time on how Android Auto is going to check the cable because... They are adding this new feature now that check cable quality. So I'm very curious, what is it all about? Because in my mind, I don't know how much you can check. Yes, you can say the connectivity is bad, but can you actually pinpoint it's the cable or is it the hardness in the car or is it the USB port? So I'm curious how this will go. Yeah, one of the problems, of course, is that USB standard is so fragmented and so confusing, and there's no guarantee that any cable you get, even from your phone manufacturer, is up to par, up to standards, just because of how many different standards there are, the different brandings for each standard. Like, I think USB 3.1, Gen 2, 3, you know, the standards are a mess, an absolute mess. So good luck finding the right cable that will work perfectly with your car and your phone which is why I'm not surprised so many people are jumping at these new wireless Android Auto options on the market. And Emil, you were actually the first one to create one of these dongles, I believe. I think your project, AA Wireless, was the first on the market to enable upgrading a wired Android Auto head unit to support wireless Android Auto. Can you tell us a bit about how that works and what is it your product does? Yes, indeed. It was the first. I think now we have a few competitions, but... We were the first, and the idea was very, very simple because both wireless and USB work the same way. I said, why not take a device, make it a wireless antenna, get all the data from the phone, copy it over to your USB and pass it over to the car, data from the car on a USB and send it back to the phone over Wi-Fi. Basically, that's what our adapter does. However, there are two separate scenarios here. One I will call a simple one, where absolutely nothing is changed on the car, on the data. We just copy the data from the USB port to the TCP socket and back from the TCP socket to the USB. The other version is where, where actually we present our adapter as a phone to the car and we present the adapter as a car to the phone. We are intercepting the whole data and we can manipulate it. And manipulating data allow us, for example, to change the DPI, allowing users to change their resolution or how Android Auto is seen on the screen, or actually enable split screen or cars which do not support this. However, this has its own set of issues. Some cars really do not like this and they have problems with SSL handshakes. And there we cannot use this. But 
all the cars can actually use the simple format where we just copy over the data. So that's given any car will be able to use that. Equally fascinating to me is not just how Android Auto actually communicates with head units, but what is happening on Android after a connection is made. Because since everything is running off of the phone, you might be wondering, where does this new launcher interface come from? How are apps actually running on this experience? Because there's no other app except for Android Auto that can do what it does. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit, how does this work under the hood? How does Android Auto seemingly have its own system UI and launcher and its own space for apps to run in? Like what is happening behind the scenes? This changed a lot and my knowledge might not be up to date to the latest, latest changes because there were recent changes introduced in, in how Android Auto works, but in essence, all it happens, it creates a virtual display where it generates all this H.264, which is then sent over to the, the car. And how it works, it's a system app. Like you said, it's a privileged app. Even in the past, it used Google Play services as a piggyback to escalate all the permissions when it was a standalone separate app on the phone. And because it has all those permissions, it can do things normal app cannot do, like capture the audio of the device, which you do not have permission as a normal app, you cannot fully capture the audio, or it can override the do not disturb settings, it can override what you see or what you don't see on the screen, and it can do all this because it's a system app. No normal app will be able to reproduce this 100% without being a rooted phone, for example, where you can grant super user access to that app, other than that normal app won't be able to do this. In the past, it was simple because it didn't offer any graphical apps. It was only media apps, which, which it offered, where the apps had to use specific SDK parts, and it was an implementation which Android now knew how to get from. And it was easy because the app was using the SDK, it was using the APIs, it was sending the data, it was telling, look, I'm an app which I'm capable to play back music and display on Android Auto. So Android Auto know, aha, uh -huh, this is that app. I can use this. I can launch this app or the service of this app and just get the data from the app, get the music, and, and that's all. These days, they added the car library where you can develop parking apps or EV charging apps. Here, they've made quite a few changes and they do offer you a service where you can actually drove it. So it, this changed this change, and I guess it will change even more in the future. But everything is still based like on a virtual screen, where you can draw all your stuff using the surface, which the Android Auto app will provide to you. It's a special surface, and app developers have to use that in order to actually display data on, on the car screen. And of course, the other side there being that developers obviously have to go through Google to get their apps certified because Google, as they made clear when they launched Auto, has very stringent requirements for the behaviors of apps inside the Auto interface. Yeah, the Android Auto app decides what categories of apps are allowed to be launched on that privileged virtual service. There were some methods to launch any arbitrary app in the past, and it seems like Google's working on a screen mirroring service so that you could theoretically launch any app mirrored from your phone screen, but your app has to have a specific category of service defined within its manifest. And only those services the Android Auto app will recognize as a valid app that can be launched on the surface. 
And as Emil mentioned, developers can use the Android for Cars app library to develop said apps that are only of specific categories like media, messaging, navigation, parking, etc. And those apps work on both Android Auto and Android Automotive. But what developers can't do is replicate the entirety of Android Auto or create their own open source version of it because, well, theoretically, it'd be possible because all the APIs and everything Android Auto uses is available in Android. But probably like 9 out of 10 of those APIs cannot be accessed by third-party unprivileged applications. You would need to install your own open source implementation as a privileged app and granted all these permissions and understand, first of all, how this all works because Google surely doesn't document it publicly for developers to copy themselves. And from what I've seen, there aren't any open source re-implementations of Android Auto. On a previous episode, we talked with a developer from Graphene OS about how they created a library to enable many Google apps and services on their AOSP software experience. But one of the applications I'm told they haven't been able to figure out is Android Auto because Android Auto just makes use of so many different privileged APIs that creating a translation layer between Android Auto and AOSP would just be a massive undertaking. So at this point in time, Android Auto is a really unique service and one that no one has been able to replicate on Android, at least so far. Well, we might have a chance because now they don't have Google anymore. They, they make the OS. Well, we probably could create a really new Android Auto experience, or they can call it whatever they want and use Android Auto protocol. Yeah, just display that on the car screen really possible for them to do that. But yeah, for a normal developer, that won't be possible. I guess random aside on that point, then, if somebody were to try to re-implement or reverse engineer, is there any kind of handshake happening with the car or the phone that says this is a legitimate Android Auto APK? Is there any kind of validation happening there? Yes, there is. That's one of the first things which happens. Car and the phone will shake hand, and there is an SSL certificate which needs to be validated before things go any further. But that's not that difficult to be reproduced. There are quite a few out there on the wild. So if you look a bit around, you will find plenty of, of those certificates which you can use. We don't endorse doing such things, but there have been projects in the past and that are out there in the wild that already do this. So if you are interested, do your own research. So Android Auto, there is not much public information about how it works under the hood, but it is fascinating to take a look at the underlying APIs that it might be using and see what other ways those APIs could be used. When Emil mentioned that Android Auto creates a virtual display and that virtual display is where the Android Auto system UI navigation experience and all apps are launched in, that kind of brought to mind some of the other features and implementations that are being developed by Google for other purposes. There was a recent report by 9to5Google on Google developing a mirroring service for Pixel phones on Android 13. And that also uses the concepts of virtual displays to create a virtual display and then mirror that virtual display to connected PCs. And I find that concept very fascinating, the things you can do with a virtual display. Our last episode, we talked about desktop modes. One of the things you could do with a virtual display is you could create a virtual display, launch a specific desktop mode, launch your experience on that virtual display, and then have that become the experience that's projected onto a external monitor, for example. I believe that may even be how 
implementations like wireless decks work. There's just so many things you can do with this concept of virtual displays. And it's interesting to see that Android Auto may have been the very first use of this concept, because I believe virtual displays have existed for a long time. They were introduced around the same time that Android Auto was introduced, but I didn't put two and two together until you just mentioned it right now, Emil. I'm not sure if this was the purpose of virtual displays, but yes, I think they were introduced back with Android Lollipop 5.0. I think it was. I think that's when the virtual displays came around. And it might have been one of the reasons, indeed. Looking into Google's plan with Auto, the way they've evolved features for it has been very staggered and strange. But obviously, with phones becoming so much more powerful, especially with heterogeneous processing, ultra-low power processors, a lot of this functionality is a lot less taxing on the device to implement. Maybe eventually you have support for advanced video codecs that could make it even more efficient and responsive in terms of latency. Android devices are starting to get AV1 decoder chips, for example. So Google could potentially look into a format for projection that would be faster, more responsive. But even beyond that, just kind of features and the potential of the platform. Also looking at what they're doing with automotive, because automotive and auto obviously have that developer connection there in terms of what the apps are able to do, because Google wants developers to have that two-for-one strategy, where if you develop for auto, you're developing for automotive and vice versa. So I'd love to get a sense from you of where do you see the platform going in the next couple of years? Do you have a sense of what Google might be trying to add? Or even if you don't, what do you think should be on their priority list. I'm not sure that it's everything up to Google because to be honest, Android Auto itself has so much potential, which is not used. For example, you have theoretically the protocol, which is used, can handle everything from AC climate, gear speed, everything is there. I think the car manufacturers are reluctant to actually implement all this because it will mean giving up control on their car. I'm pretty, pretty sure, although I said one day I will do it, never have the time. If you would adjust everything on the car side, you could use Android Auto and Google Assistant to, let's say, set the heater on, set the temperature in the car, change the radio station, and so on, because everything is already in the protocol. So, and it was back in the day as well, because when I finally figured out the whole protocol, I, I took a look in the past and it was there from, from day one, from 2015, this was there. So I do think Google had other plans, but I think it was a major resistance from car manufacturers who say, no, 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 yeah, you're not going to do that. No. So it's, it's very difficult to actually say where Google will go. Most probably, in my opinion, Android Auto will stay more or less as it is now without any extra features. And sooner or later, we will start seeing more and more cars going for the full Android Automotive OS. But it will take a while till the manufacturers actually catch up to all this and they say, okay, let's do it. And they admit that their own implementation might not be the best. It's interesting you bring that up because I hadn't thought about it. I think the first time I heard Google really speak about that at length was when Honda launched their first Android Auto cars. 
And Honda had some support for a few little things that were unusual. So Hondas could send the music data to the instrument cluster. So they built a little integration for that. It was probably already pretty simple given their native infotainment stack. And I'm guessing that song and track information is pretty universal. But there were a few little things they added. They also added turn-by-turn -turn integration into the central cluster of the car. So again, that was another thing where they'd made those customizations on deeper integration. Now, Google, when I talked to them, was like, yeah, you can do anything. You could see your fluid temperatures. You could see speed. You could see um, like service intervals. That was when they actually really tried to push with the OEMs at the time was, hey, your Android Auto, your phone can tell you you need an oil change. That was something that they thought could be a really interesting feature. Honda at the time said, yeah, we're looking at that. They never did it. None of the manufacturers ever did any of these deeper integrations. And you do have to wonder, like you said, Emil, like how much of that is down to the manufacturers not wanting to share the data? Because of course they don't. And that data is valuable. And also to Google then probably coming around like a year later and saying, hey, by the way, we're doing whole car operating system and this is going to offer you way more flexibility. And that's what the manufacturers wanted to hear is that they could control a lot of the experience. And, and obviously with automotive, they can just take the open source platform and the UI framework and go nuts and they can build whatever they want. So it's interesting that you brought that up. I hadn't thought about it in a long time. This is also where we put our Esper plugin, and this is a good spot for it because we do have people come to us and ask like, okay, what if I wanted to put Android in a car for a telematics use case? So if you're doing delivery vans or buses or large truck fleets where you need to keep track of vehicles, see where they're going, monitor their speed, make sure drivers are driving okay. There are obviously existing telematics solutions for all of this, but what if I were to just create my own operating system for my fleet of vehicles and work with a partner to do that? Well, that is where we can come in. We've never built an Android automotive product. Granted, nobody has yet outside of Google and its partners. But of course, it's an open source platform and there's a lot of potential there. Now, Android Auto, of course, is a closed source product and we really can't do much with that. But given the developer experience and alignment between auto and automotive, there are some ecosystem overlaps there. And it's a really interesting space. And like Michelle said, if you want to learn more about Android Automotive and what makes it unique and interesting as a platform, go back to our very first episode with Snap Automotive and what they're doing, because it's really interesting. And they're actually developing on Samsung Galaxy Tabs because there is no Android Automotive reference hardware, at least outside of Google. <laughs> There's nothing that you can buy. Uh, so unless you want to go buy a Polestar, that's probably the only Android automotive reference design you can get. So if you're interested in this space and you're wondering like, okay, how do I look at a car operating system and not in vehicle infotainment system or logistics system? Is the Android Automotive a platform I could use? Come talk to Esper. We're at esper.io, book a demo. And if you have a really serious use case and you're like, we really want to build an in-vehicle OS that is going to be scalable for our needs, whether it's trucking, whether it's a taxi, whether it's anything else, come talk to us. Because honestly, we love these kinds of platform challenges and we can get you in touch with suppliers. We can get you in touch with software vendors and everybody you need to make a complete experience. So that's esper.io. And I will hand it back to Michelle to do outros. Thanks, David. And thank you, Emil, for joining us on this discussion. It was pretty difficult finding someone who can speak authoritatively on Android Auto, but then remembered, hey, I know the guy who made the AA wireless dongle. He's also the guy that made the head unit reloaded app that I use all the time to test Android Auto features on. And I'm like, I, I can't think of anyone better to invite on the show. 
Oh yeah, plug that app by the way. Like totally. Um, you'll you'll find this funny, Emil. One of our coworkers who was on XDA for years, modding phones and things. He just got a brand new 2021 Subaru WRX STI, and the first thing he did was ripped out his existing head unit, went over to I forget the vendor's name, plugged in his own Android unit, and put on head unit reloaded. He's like, that is the number one. That's like because he had a Volkswagen Jetta before that, and he's like, I can't go back after that once you have that experience. So I'm looking into that for my old Mercedes potentially too. So yes, ML, here is where you can plug yourself. Where can people find you? What are some of the apps and products that you offer? Go wild. Uh, I think the easiest way to find me is probably just do a Google search. I have a name which is so unique that it's impossible to find anybody else. I'm not detective on XDA anymore the last two years, mainly because I have really no time. And most of the time went into developing a wireless, which is the bridge of making, bringing old USB connection only and without the cars to be able to use wireless Android Auto. And while we had a good concept of what we are going to do, we had so, so many challenges in the last two years that it took up a lot of my time, way more than I expected. Probably if you ping me on XDA, you can still find me. If not, if you look up a wireless, you will definitely find me on Indiegogo. You will find our website there. And you can find me even on Reddit or other places. I still answer most of the emails. So I still support all the guys who actually purchased that unit reloaded. And wow, I have plans for some new apps, hopefully coming out in the next two weeks, months, I will say. But I don't want to say anything because if I don't have time to finish them, it will lead to disappointment. Once they are finished and they are launched, I will definitely let you guys know, and I will definitely mention them on XDA and uh, maybe in some other places like Reddit or, or post a YouTube video. But I'm not the guy who's making good videos, so I will stick to just writing some announcement on XDA. Thanks for having me. Oh, and uh, before we close this episode off, I just wanted to bring up this is also the guy who made the app that enables Android Auto on Tesla. So if you have a Tesla and for some reason you want to run Android Auto, well, not for some reason, because Google Maps is way superior to the inbuilt navigation system there. I think he has an app called Tesla Wireless. I forgot what it's called, but you can run Android Auto through a wireless web browsing session. It's pretty wild how it works. Just go check it out. I highly recommend it. Yeah, it's called Tesla, T-E-S-L-A-A, very clever name. So yeah, ML is a guy to look out for if you're interested in understanding how Android Auto works. Check out those apps and products. And thanks for joining us on another episode of Android Bytes, everyone.